Now we're taking our Bible reading from the New Testament, from John's Gospel, chapter 19. John's Gospel, chapter 19, will commence our reading at the opening verse. <coughs> then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. The soldiers petted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, and said, Heal, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. <coughs> the Jews answered him, We have a law, a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought <coughs> Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was the preparation of the Passover, at about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. He, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, two others with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. Pilate wrote a title, put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then was read of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. We'll end our reading there. God again will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. I'd like you to open your Bible, please, with me at the portion of Scripture we read together in John chapter 19. While all of the chapter is so very, very important, we are going to focus our thoughts upon what is recorded in verse 17. And there the Bible says, Of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he bearing his cross, 
went forth. We're going to centre our thoughts in particular upon two words only, his cross. And when we turn to that subject, we're turning to one of the saddest, yet one of the most sublime subjects anywhere recorded in the Bible. You see, the cross of Christ is at the very heart of the Scriptures. It is the central theme of biblical Christianity. The Apostle Paul often spoke about the cross and actually spoke about glorying in the cross. But when he spoke about glorying in the cross, he was not thinking about two pieces of metal or a wood that were put together with metal or even a particular tree. But rather he was speaking about the person who was nailed to that cross. We've been singing Isaac Watts' great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss, poor contempt on all my pride. And for the time given to us, we want to do what Isaac Watts did, survey the cross <coughs> of Christ. As we come to look at this subject, I want to turn your thoughts, first of all, to the shame of the cross. And that is something that often we do not contemplate or consider. When we view Calvary, it was no pleasant sight. But rather, we discover that it was the place of shame. The Lord Jesus Christ, it says that of him as well. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 it says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The shame of the cross. We'll condense that to two things. There was first of all the shame of his clothes. Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 27, which is the corresponding chapter to John 19. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers and they stripped him. That holy, harmless, sinless son of God, the one who knew no sin, did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. The one who could stand all before all the hostile leaders of his day and say, which of you can convince me of sin? And there wasn't one of them could open their mouth in honest condemnation against him because every charge that had been brought against Christ was a false charge. But when he is brought into Pilate's judgment hall, that same spotless saviour is stripped naked of his clothing. The shame of it. When they scourged him, ploughed his back with many stripes. Then they did something else, folks. They threw over his shoulder a purple and a scarlet robe. Now they did that, and that was very, very symbolic. Because what they were doing was this. They were doing that in mockery of royalty. You see, only the royalty of that day were purple and scarlet. 
And what they were saying was this, so you're a king. Well, kings wear robes of purple. And so they threw this purple robe over him. Mockingly, but he despised the shame. There was also the shame of his crown. Because the Bible tells us in verse 2 of John 19, the soldiers planted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. Now they took the crown of thorns and again that was done in mockery of royalty. But why was it made of thorns? After all, they could have made a crown of something else, but they specifically made that crown of thorns and they put it upon his head. In other words, so you're a king. Well, kings wear royal robes, so we'll give you a robe. So you're a king. Kings wear crowns, so let's give you a crown. And it was a crown of thorns. That takes us back to creation. Back to when God spoke this world into existence. And everything that God has made was absolutely perfect. The world in its original creation was a farmer's literal paradise. There were no thorns, there were no briars, there were no weeds whatsoever. Then we read, in Genesis 3, Adam had sinned and God did something. He cursed the ground. And in cursing the ground, he said to Adam, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life thorns. Also in thistles shall it bring forth thee. In other words, there's the introduction of the thorn. Thorns were a symbol of the curse. And when they put that crown of thorns upon the head of Christ, it was as if they were placing God's curse on him. In other words, you say you're a king. You're not a king. You're even cursed of God. But the great truth is this, folk, that God placed the curse of your sin and mine upon Christ, and he became our substitute taking our sins and our sorrows, bearing them in his own body to the tree. The hymn writer says, The bitter sorrow that he bore, and all the crown of thorns he wore, that I might live forevermore, is more than tongue can tell. There was the shame of it, but he despised the shame, bearing shame, scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. But moving on quickly, folks, there's also the sufferings of his cross. Now, you and I can never, ever enter into the extent and nature of Christ's suffering. And that is so, because there is no word in our English language that is sufficient to give full expression to the nature of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks about the piercing of Christ. 
Psalm 22, verse 16, that messianic psalm, says they pierced my hands and my feet. And Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 53 and verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. But we will never understand the awful nature of the piercing and the wounding and the bruising of the Lord Jesus Christ. The hymn writer says five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary the poor effectual prayers, they strongly plead for me, forgive him all, forgive he cried, let not that ransom sinner die. And the Lord Jesus Christ, there on Calvary's cross, he was pierced by nails and thorns. The piercing of Christ, the darkness of Calvary, why they are emphasized in Psalm 22. Now, while the psalmist wrote that psalm, they go far beyond anything that the psalmist endured, and no doubt they have a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It was written when David was being hounded and hated and persecuted by Saul, but the statements go towards Christ as well. But there was not only the piercing of Christ, but the pains of Christ. We must never think that because Jesus Christ was born to die, that those things were just another incident in the life of the Savior. When they pierced Christ, he felt the pangs and the pains and the suffering and the shame like any individual would feel it. Because though he was God of very God, he was man of very man. Therefore, he felt it like man. After all, during his life on this earth, he voluntarily subjected himself to every sinless weakness known to man. He sat down at Jacob's well. Why? Because the Bible says he was weary with his journey. We know, of course, as the scripture says, that the everlasting God fainteth not, neither is weary. But in manhood, Jesus was conscious of physical weakness. Hence, he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knew the pangs of hunger. He knew the pangs of thirst. He felt the pains of rejection. He felt the shame of crucifixion. No doubt he felt the pains of mockery when they repudiated his claim and when they ridiculed his character and they rejected his compassion. Because there's been no character ever ridiculed like the character of Jesus. In his day, they said, he is a devil. They said he was a wine river. And in more modern history, he has been referred to as the illegitimate son of a fallen woman. And they brought him down to the level of the most basest of individuals that ever lived. Friend, I trust that you personally do not repudiate his claim on your life or ridicule his character or indeed reject his compassion. Could it be that you have been in attendance even in a place of worship all your life and yet your heart has never been open to the inflow of his grace? If you died today, you'd be lost. A little verse in the Bible says, Saw the wicked or the sinful, 
come from the place of the holy. The sufferings of the cross, the pains of Christ cry out. All this I did for you. But what have you done for me? Pilate said that day, what shall I do then with Jesus which is called Christ? And though he said, I find no fault in this man, he crucified. What have you done with Jesus? But then I want you to notice in the third place the sayings of his cross. Now don't despair. Because we normally take seven weeks to do the seven sayings of Christ. That's not going to happen today. But you know folks in Luke chapter 23 in the verse 34. The Lord Jesus Christ in his first saying from the cross he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And those who crucified Christ did not know the awfulness of what they were doing or the consequences of what they were doing. And the man who rejects Jesus Christ today doesn't know the consequences of what he's doing. To trample Jesus' blood under his feet. They did not know what they were doing. Sadly because their eyes were blinded by the devil. That they did not recognize him as their savior or the Messiah. As the Jew to this very day doesn't do. But their ignorance of divine truth. Did not excuse them. Or mean that they deserve forgiveness. But the Saviour's words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, are an expression of the limitless compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in Luke 23 and 43, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, his second saying. And there the Saviour was assuring a criminal of his conversion and of his place in his kingdom. Again, the hymn writer pens it well when he said, The vilest offender who truly believes this moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And those are two very, very important statements. The third statement was this, John 19 and 26, had we read on. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple standing by whom he loved, that disciple was John. He saith unto the woman, Woman, behold thy son. Now folks, you will have noticed. There's a change. From the first two sayings to the third one. The first saying was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second saying was, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The third saying is, Woman, behold thy son. You see, the first two sayings, they are a revelation of Christ's divinity. The third saying is a revelation of Christ's humanity. 
You see, the first two sayings express, first of all, his power to forgive sins. Father, forgive them. Also, his power to grant salvation. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The third saying, an expression of his humanity, because Jesus was concerned not only for Mary as a saviour, but as a son. And there's a vital truth for it to be learned there. While the Lord saves us by his grace, the moment he does that, we become his responsibility. And he cares for us in every aspect of our life. And there from the cross, he was showing his concern for his earthly mother. And he puts her into the care of the disciple John. And from that moment, John took care. She became his responsibility as we are Christ's responsibility. Reminds us that God does care for you and me. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He weeps with those who weep. Little wonder he tells us to cast our care upon him, for he careth for you. And then in Matthew 27 and verse 46, we have that fourth saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there the Saviour was expressing his feelings of abandonment. He was abandoned. You know, Pilate walked into the presence of Christ boldly and brave and said, Those disciples will fail you, they will forsake you, but not me. I would even die for you. The problem was... He hadn't even learned to live for Christ. And you know, when we read the story of the cross, we read these words, they all forsook him. But then we read Jesus saying from the cross, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there the Saviour who became sin for us, is now abandoned by the Father. It had to be so, because the Bible says, God is of pure eyes and to behold iniquity, and cannot look upon sin, and when Jesus became sin, God the Father had to turn away. But he became sin for us, and more than that, folks, he became a curse for us. They put the symbol of the curse on his brow, Indeed, he did become a curse for us. Because the Bible says, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. In our chapter of John 19, and the verse 28, we have that fifth saying of Christ, when he cried out, I After this the Jews, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. After enduring the floggings, the trials, the crucifixion, here is the thing, folks, that the Son of God, who was with the Father in creation, because God said, let us, he didn't say let me make man, he said let us. 
There was a reference to the Trinity. So Christ was with God in creation. Now he is crying from the cross, I thirst. And the truth is this. That he who made the waters of this world is now experiencing extreme dehydration and thirst. Such was the crucifixion of Christ. There was no pain or pang that the Son of God did not endure for you and for me. In Luke 23 and 46, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now listen, folks. That was not the cry of defeat. That was the cry and the shout of victory. It was not the cry of a man being conquered by death, but rather it was the shout of one who is conquering death. And there Christ conquered man's last enemy. And then in John 19 and 30, he said, it is finished. On the original text, we just have one word. His sufferings were over. The whole work that God the Father had given God the Son to do, he had done it, he had finished it. The debt of sin was paid. Jesus' death and resurrection was God's plan of redemption from eternity past. From his birth to his boyhood, manhood and public ministry. Jesus' whole focus was to finish the work that his father gave him, that work of redemption. What a price Jesus paid for you and me. The Jews that day, when they bid for his blood, could not see who he was or the value that he was placing upon their soul. I trust, friend, you see the value that God places upon your life. That he would give the darling of his bosom to such a death and to the hounds of hell that we might have redemption. Hymn writer puts it this way and says, He hell in hell led low. Made sin, he sin o'erthrew. Bowed to the grave, destroyed its soul, and death by dying slow. One last thought, folks. There's the sufficiency of the cross. You see, all that Jesus did. Now brings us to that place where we have to say, Calvary covers it all. My sin not in part but the whole. They were nailed to his cross. We bear them no more. Praise the Lord of my soul. Because his people have a full, a free, 
and a forever redemption. You see, it is that cross that bridged the gulf between God and sinful man. Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. What blessed position belongs to the believing saint. Hebrews chapter 12 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down the right hand of God. Now, the sitting down of Christ is symbolic. When do people sit down? They sit down when their day's work. And Jesus said down, clear manifestation and declaration, the work is done. That was a once forever sufficient sacrifice. Hence today, there's a way back to God. From the dark paths of sin, a door has been opened and we can go in. But at Calvary's cross is where we begin when we come as sinners to Jesus. Friend, have you ever come as a sinner to Jesus? And if you have, today we stand complete in him. Safe, secure, and sure of God's heaven. There's not much in this world that you and I can ever be sure of anymore. But this one thing the believer can be sure of. Come life or death, because of Calvary, they will be with Christ. Not how I feel or don't feel, but because Calvary covers the Lord Jesus Christ, you see, who said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And he did. And he walked out of the grave in the power and majesty of his own resurrection. You see, Herod couldn't kill him. Satan could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. He rose again and is forever beyond the power of death. And because he lives, he says, you shall live also. What a full, complete redemption belongs to God's people. All because Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame. Therefore, as God's people, we must never be ashamed of him. Maybe someone out of Christ is that very thing that bothers you. The shame of it all. The fear of man. What they might think or say, if they heard, you'd become a Christian. But remember, <coughs> Jesus despised the shame 
for you and me. Thank God for Calvary, for the Son of God who loved us, gave himself for us. Again, it all cries out, this I have done for you. What have you done for me? And the best thing you can do, my friend, is give him your life. And D.L. Moody said this, Give your life to Christ, for he can do far more with it than you ever can.